0: Up. i had the honor of interviewing professor amber wiley phd she is the second black preservationist as well as i'll call her a historian i don't know if she calls herself a historian but i'll call her a historian but technically she is an associate professor of art history at records university her research interest centers on social aspects of design and how it affects urban communities. Architectural as a literal and figurative structure of power, she focuses on ways local and national bodies have made the claim for the dominating narrative and collective memory of cities and examine how preservation and public history contributes to the creation and maintenance of the identity and sense of place of a city. That's a mouthful. So uh, we were supposed to talk a couple of months back, but the pandemic happened and we were like, let's reschedule. So the rescheduled happened and you're about to hear the interview. I was drawn to her. Well, I didn't admit this to her, but I stalked her. And I've been stalking her for a long time, ever since she was in Tulane, and she got that fellowship. I didn't tell you this, Amber, but I knew that you got that fellowship. It was in a news article or magazine or something. And I was like, this black woman got the bomb hookup. She's like traveling for a year. And I realized that I would not be able to do that. And I say that because I'm not a history person. And you hear all that in the interview. But we talked about her education, her journey to present. And then the reason why I'm talking to her is she did some research. is basically around Tyler House. So she gave some insight on some things. We mentioned Walter Fonchoy in the discussion. And she sent me an email afterwards. And She was like, she wanted to clarify some things. She wants to be as accurate as she could possibly can. I didn't give her any time to prep. Like I didn't like write anything down and send it to her. She even asked me that. She's like, hey, Melissa, do you, I need to prepare. And I was like, "Nah, girl, you good. And then I like hit her with some things. And so anyway, she sent me a clarification email and it was two points. And the second point she thought she touched upon and she kind of did when I went back to edit, but I took it out because it was like an example. She didn't really go in depth. Like she thought she went in depth. But back to Walter Fonchoy. So, Walter Fonchoy was the D.C. head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, which hosted the March on Washington and not the Southern Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the SNCC. Okay. And then the second thing that I took out was about Carl Hansen. And I'll just let you know Carl Hansen anyway, even though I took it out of the interview. But, uh... Mm -hmm. Carl Hansen was the defendant in Hobson versus Hansen, a court case where black activist Julius Hobson sued the school system and Hansen, the superintendent of schools, because of the discriminatory tracking system it had implemented. So just in case you want to know who Carl Hansen is. And I went to a middle school called Stuart Hobson. So I'm kind of curious if Julius Hobson was part of Stuart Hobson. I'm thinking they was, I don't know. Anyways, that's a later discussion. One thing I adore about Amber is that she gave a lot of credit where credits do. So she shot out, like I mentioned earlier, she's the second black preservationist that I know. And she made sure to let me know that there are others out there and she listed all of them. Oh, most of them, some of them, I don't know. It was way more than I thought out there she also mentioned a bunch of other people too who helped her along the way to become who she is I I love that I know for me most deaf that I would not be where I am because of people and I would not be able to do anything without encouraging encouragement from others so I understand her appreciation a thousand percent because I do the same thing. I could not be where I am without or even examples of people, my peers, my colleagues, all of them who, you know, they say that you should hang around people that you aspire to be. And I hold on to that. And everybody who I call a friend and I'm hoping I'm your friend because we inspire each other. So like I said earlier, Amber did research about Dunbar and LaJroid Park, which both areas is not too far from where I live. So it's just fascinating to to see how connected we were. And the beginning of the interview is gonna sound muffled a little bit. I forgot to take off my fan and so a little bit into it I realized like, oh snap, the fan's on. Because I couldn't hear. Her. And so the volume was way up. I was like, why can I not hear? And I realized I had my fan on, so I took it off. So in first 10 minutes or so, you'll hear the fan. And then I cut it off. You're like, oh, I can hear now. <laughs> what else? Oh, so Amber is going to have a book coming out. She'll let everybody know, but I appreciate her making that announcement. I don't know if there was a secret or not, but I kept it in there. So she wraps up me talking to non-architects the next couple of podcasts it's going to be groups of people all overseas too so i am excited about that in december i am taking a break just to enjoy the holidays and do some type of summary for this first season of um, the architecture is political podcast and see how far i have gone in my research and to summarize all the people I've talked to and it just just a nice little summary I don't know how that summary is going to be presented I do want a visual summary for sure not just audio stay tuned for that so okay I talk too much hope you enjoy so I know of you but this is the first time that we've ever met right yes and you never heard of me at all. I was going to say, we have people in common. <laughs> this is from my own curiosity as far as how did you get into this area of expertise. I I was fascinated with Nikita when I first met her. I do You, preservation stuff, hi- history stuff. What? Yeah. <laughs> she just kept going on and on and on and on. And so... Uh, when I heard there's another nerd out there, I was, listening. I need to talk to her. She needs to be my friend. So the yeah. a history behind that. So the, the meat of this discussion, I know I mentioned before that you don't know specifically the, where I grew up. I mean, the specific housing project, but the area in itself, I feel, mm-hmm. you know, and is the surroundingness. Mm-hmm. My sister went to Dunbar it's public housing, mm-hmm. I want to talk about Berry Farms with you, mm. so that's <laughs> the meat of the discussion.
1: Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm happy to give a couple people a shout out. So I'm not the only Black woman nerdy history preservation architecture person out there. Me and Nikita, there's Andrea Roberts in Texas, uh, Tara Dudley in Texas, Naya Bates, who's going to be Starting her doctorate at Princeton in the fall, but she's been working at Monticello, you know, telling Sally Hemings' story. Uh, There's Fallon Samuels-Adoo, who's at the University of New Orleans. We we got a little, what? (laughs) Uh, You know, I got to shout those ladies out. Yeah, so how did I come to this? I thought since high school, I wanted to be an architect. And I did hear a couple of your earlier podcasts and the most recent one. So I've got a little context on you too. And I thought it was interesting because my interest in architecture stemmed also from my home environment, but it was very different. My parents divorced when I was very young and we moved around a lot. So I'm from Oklahoma City. I'm not from DC. That is my second home. My mom was a DC native. Uh, she went to Wilson, although she grew up in Leadwork Park and was supposed to go to Dunbar. That That's mm. another story. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I moved around a lot when I was young. I'm big In Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City and Edmond, the suburbs. So we lived in big houses, we lived in little houses, we lived in apartments. It was pretty, I guess, unstable in a sense. I went to four different elementary schools. So, <laughs> yeah, I was moving. And, It got to the point where I would actually draw, and I was in the fourth grade, that's the earliest I can remember, drawing a floor plan of my dream house. And I was, my bedroom's gonna be this big, (laughs) and my brother's bedroom's gonna be way over there on the other side of the house. So I had to see him. You know, I'm gonna have a patio that wraps around the back, and I'm gonna have a garden, and I'm gonna have a door that slides open. So, that I could go onto my patio and not see anybody and just enjoy myself. And there's gonna be a skylight in my room. I had it all. (laughs) (laughs) This is fourth grade. I knew what I wanted. So, I went to college specifically for architecture, applying to technical programs at Georgia Tech and USC, professional programs, and more liberal programs. I ended up going to Yale because USC gave me a half scholarship. Now, if I'm gonna pay all this money, might as well pay it to someplace Yale. Uh, there are different programs. It's a BA in architecture, but nobody from my high school had gone to Ivy League. So I was the first one. I was talking to my best friend about this last month. She was, Amber was the first person to go to Ivy League from our high school. I was the first black person. The first person. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So I, my high school was pretty new at the time. It opened in 93 and I graduated in 99. So, yeah, most of the folks from my high school went to OU, OSU, Oklahoma State University, University of Central Oklahoma. Some folks ventured on down to Texas. One person I remember went to Georgetown. That was, the, that was Georgetown. So, yeah, I was the fourth graduating class from my high school. How big was your class? <laughs> 370 oh, some odd people. Wow.
0: Okay. <laughs> and Isn't out of it? that, was it, I don't know, 50 black people or? Man, mm-hmm. so
1: it was about, it was about 10% or even more, maybe 15. Oh. Okay. Now it's 40, but that's a different story. Yeah. It was the suburb high school right on the edge of Oklahoma City. So a lot of people would live in the city and make their way to the high school some way or another. Okay.
0: Yeah. So how was life at Yale?
1: It was rough. And it was, I mean, the culture shock was real. (laughs) I got teased. I I will stand by this. I got teased for my accent. It's gone away significantly, but it was very pronounced in 99. And so everybody, they just called me Oklahoma. My name is Amber. Okay. So black folks and white folks the real house. Look at this different kind of person. <laughs> I found, you know, I found my people from Texas and Mississippi. I said, your country. Let's be friends. You know, so there were people who had gone to Exeter and Andover, and I truly did not know that that boarding school still existed. I thought there were things that you read about. I had read a separate piece in high school, so I was that's that's fiction. That's that's where that still exists. I didn't know, I remember when someone said something about going to the Hamptons for a vacation, I was with that. There were so many social cues that I was not up on. And even my New York City folks who were in ABC or Prep for Prep, I was what is that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just applied, what are you talking about? There's a whole program. So it was a lot and I couldn't wait to get home. For Thanksgiving and for Christmas (laughs) get me out of here the architecture program is actually where I decided to go into history so I knew I didn't want to be in studio all day I was this is the pits this is not the life for me and Yale had three tracks for the architecture major design urban studies or urban planning and history theory criticism they and they still actually do I was looking at their curriculum just last month. They haven't changed a thing. Oh, anyway, so I was the person in the history, history and theory of architecture class, the survey we all had to take, who was thoroughly entranced. Everybody else was asleep. And this is back in the days of slide projectors. So it was, and it was pitch black. And I was like, ooh, pyramids. Ooh, cathedrals. It's so cool. Oh, and you can understand a society based on where they put their value and their money, and you can understand their politics and religion. I was like, this is fascinating. And so I decided to go into the history theory criticism track, and there were five of us, was 25. Everybody else was design or planning. Preservation happened because there was a woman named Catherine Lynn. We had a number of classes we all had to take together. One of the classes that we had, and she was recruiting people for her preservation seminar. It was a grad-level seminar, and I was, well, if I'm going to do history, Maybe this is a practical arm. And I took the course and I loved it. Uh, Catherine Lynn doesn't get a whole lot of credit uh, because she is or was the wife of Vincent Scully. So he's the more famous mm. in the couple. Mm. But Taffy Lynn is is what she really goes by. But she truly inspired my interest in, in preservation and actually served as an advisor for my senior essay. Which was on Lee Joy Park, so I just want to give her a shout out too because she was my entree into the preservation world.
0: I had the best naps in my architectural history.
1: <laughs> I was like, I couldn't. Before I was, like, this is so interesting. What is wrong with y'all?
0: So you didn't feel? Oh, look at all this white history. I'm learning. Like you know, you spend the majority of the class in Europe, so.
1: Yeah, so that definitely, there were gaps. I did take some art history classes, Robert Ferris Thompson, you know, West Africa to the Americas. He talked about architecture and music and sculpture and, you know, religion and dance. And so that kind of filled those gaps for mm-hmm. me. And I was talking to somebody the other day. I was like actual, the first person who ever taught me about Africa was, for real, for real, was an old white man but that's how it is sometimes. I was dissatisfied, and I, I will say, I've said that many times, there were so many things, but what about, but what about, but what about? <laughs> so, why are they talking about this and the next thing? They're talking about urban renewal, but we're not hearing what happened to the people. They are talking about this, but we're not hearing about that. So, you know, the other part of trying to figure out what I was gonna do with my interest in architectural history was, okay, either go the practical route of preservation or go go for that PhD. So I, I applied to master's of science and master's preservation programs and also doctoral programs for grad school. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up doing a little bit of both, the practical and the academic, because there was a point where I was, I'm going to come back here and teach the classes the way they should be taught. And that's not any disrespect to Some of the people who taught me at Yale, but there there was just a a wide range of topics that were not being broached, and I was that's crazy.
0: So was was your experience at Yale the same with UVA? UVA. I was there for two years, so
1: yeah, and that's where I met Nikita and my a whole group of wonderful undergraduates, mainly undergraduates. I've said this on record maybe three times now for perpetuity that I was the only incoming Black student in the grad school in 2003. There are about 80 of us spread across four different departments then. Landscape, planning, design, and history. And I was the only incoming Black grad student that year. There were Black grad students who were there, you know, a year ahead of me. And we might have graduated at the same time for folks who came in after me and graduated with me, but I was the only one that came in my year by myself. So yeah, I hung out with the undergrads. Plus I was fresh out of undergrad myself. UVA gave me the tools I needed to be a great architectural historian and preservationist. And I took those tools and I left because uh, I didn't want to stay there. Uh, Charlottesville was oppressive. You know, I couldn't spend the better part of my 20s there. Uh, UVA was super segregated in terms of socialization. I thought that I had stepped back until 1954. I was what is going on? Because at least at Yale, we all partied together. I partied, I had, you know, my crew partied with the black folks, partied with the white folks, partied with the, you know, the the Latinos and the Latinx folks, hang with Asia, but I party. UVA. Was, well, black folks don't do that, or you don't want to go there, or you know. And the one time I did venture out into some unknown social, I was like, okay, you're right, I don't want to be here. Let me go on back <laughs> to where I was supposed to be because this ain't it. I know the undergrads had a, a different experience, but for grad school, it was not it. I had instructors who were good for my growth Del Upton, uh, Dan Bluestone. Craig Barton, I work with them, and I rolled out.
0: So yeah. your PhD was at GW. Is that what led you to DC, or?
1: So I had actually I had moved to Maryland my sophomore year in college. My mom said so my mom was originally from DC, and she got sick. She had cancer, so um, she wanted to go back home. So I had to pick up and move. Oh, okay. In the middle of my college, my undergrad years. So I was actually based in PG County when I graduated from Yale, based in PG County when I went down to Virginia. And I was there trying to decide if I was going to go to Berkeley. It was between Berkeley and and G-Dub. I wanted to be marketable in the academic field, Berkeley was a PhD in architecture and I was like, I don't know what I could do with that exactly. G-Dub was a PhD in American studies. I knew that I wanted to be able to talk about the people who use buildings and things of that nature in addition to just the designs themselves at my thesis. So you're, you're gonna get all the DC. My thesis was on Meridian Hill, Malcolm X Park at UVA. And I talked about the original design of the park, but then how the neighborhood around it changed and the uses inside the park changed. And they were, this is a sociology paper. This is not architecture. And I was, but it is. It's the people using the park. Can't the park without the people. And they're, this is not architectural history. And I was, what am I supposed to do? And I found out my professors who made the biggest impact on me both had PhDs in American Studies, Bill so Upton and Dan Bluestone. And I was, like, oh, well, if I can get a PhD in American Studies and also teach in the architecture school, then that's what I'll do. And yeah, GW, there was family there. My mom had gone there for med school, actually. Hmm. So I was following a little tradition. They also had connections with the Smithsonian and the National Park Service. And I was yeah, I can make a little entree. They had a Center for Public History. And they had Richard Longstreth and John Michael Blatch. And those are two more historians who really were influential for me. So was, I'm going to go there. So that's how I knew that. Plus, it was just D.C. It was family. It was familiar. I kind of already was
0: there. <laughs> Were you working at the same time when you were doing your PhD? You can't work, right? Wait, let me, I got to think. It's been a while. Um, so, cause you already had your master's when you get in. So you didn't have to do your master's into PhD. So then you, so it was a straight dissertation or you had, was there any supplemental classes you had to take or how did that whole thing work? It's funny that you would ask that.
1: So that was a, that's one of my, let's just say this: I believed or was led to believe, however you would put that, that my credits from UVA would transfer to GW. And they didn't in the form of a credit. But I was still required to take additional classes, methods, classes, social history classes, things that I, had some things that I wasn't very interested in to, quote, round me out. So I ended up taking way more classes at GW than I had imagined. Yeah, so maybe it was a year and a half of coursework. Maybe even two years. I can't remember at this point. That's how they get to
0: That's how they get to Yeah, I
1: was not happy. I was not happy. (laughs) I was was like, this is not what you said. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so it ended up taking me six years for completion anyways, even though I already had a master's. And I even graduated in the same timeframe as some folks who came in without a master's. That's in the past now. I did, I was a graduate teaching assistant. So that technically was my job at a certain point. I didn't have a TA ship and I did take an outside job. It was a job that people in the program had done for years and years and years. It was one of those Washington semester programs. All these different schools have the Washington semester. And it was a art and architecture of the nation's capital class that I was teaching. And I taught it for a year. I was found out. I don't remember how. I was told I had to quit the job or, you know, lose my funding. Oh. And I I can't because I already told them I was going, you know, finish out. The, so I finished out the semester. I taught two semesters of that. But when I say that class had been handed down, there were so many people in my program who had taught in that class. I just was the one who got found out with the administrator who was a stickler. But it was helpful. I needed the money. I did. I had full tuition remission and I had a $22,000 stipend. So I didn't have to pay for any of my credits and I got $22,000 a year. Hmm. But I had moved out of my cousin's house in PG County. In Landover, actually, and I had moved into the city. So that's a roommate on cool. Craigslist. Yep.
0: Down. Gone.
1: <laughs> Down. Gone. With, with the quickness. I was like, I need money. I'm sorry. So I was taking out mad loans. I got an extra job too. And so people, like, we give you the stipend so that you don't have to work. And I'm like, I don't know if you know. <laughs> <laughs> But that ain't it, you know. So yeah, I did. I was
0: I was TAing.
1: Had an outside job taking out mad loans that I'm still paying on.
0: You finally got So so now you're a doctor. And then what happened?
1: I got my first job at Tulane, and I got that job. But this is how everything kind of comes back full circle. I realize things come back full circle, so I have to be thankful for whatever the the uh, obstacles were in the way, but. I got my first job from one of my professors from Virginia. So Ken Schwartz had taught a class that I took while at UVA and he was newly the Dean of the Tulane school of architecture. And I was reaching out to everybody I knew I was applying to all kinds of jobs. I was getting rejected, no interviews. I was reaching out to faculty who I had worked with who were at different institutions. Look, I mean, do y'all need me to come sweep the floors? What do y'all need me to do there? And he was actually, we do need someone to teach the history theory course. So I came in as a visiting assistant professor. It was not tenure track. I was there for three years, but I needed a tenure track position because every spring I was like, do I have a job? This is still my job. And the pay was not fantastic. So, I was applying for jobs the whole time I was at uh, Tulane, um, getting good experience, meeting some amazing people, loving New Orleans. Yes. And I ended up getting a traveling fellowship from the Society of Architectural Historians and a job offer in the same year.
0: Mm, It rained.
1: It did. So, I took that. Trip and that trip actually, the Society of Architectural Historians traveling fellowship. I positioned the research that I was supposed to do. The whole point was just to travel and look at buildings and study. Now I, I can do this. And my whole purpose was to look at the non Western tradition of architecture. Because as you said, in the history of architecture class, all we were looking at was Europe. That's all I knew. When I was teaching history and theory at Tulane, I was I was staying up. Super late, reading everything I could about Indian Buddhist shrines, reading everything I could about Sub-Saharan Africa and Congo. It just, it was insane. I was trying to make up for everything that I never learned. And that fellowship gave me the opportunity to do it in real life. Because as you know, yeah, you can read everything that you can on a place and you can look at all the pictures, but you will never fully understand it until you get there and fill it in 3D. And that was the opportunity that I had. So I traveled to Mexico, Guatemala, Ghana, Ethiopia, India, and Vietnam. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. I had proposed more places, but as it turns out, that was hard to do. And visas and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, two countries in the Americas, two in Africa, two in Asia. All of which actually had undergone some form of colonization. And so then I was looking at indigenous architecture and the colonial stuff, going to all these historic sites, going to all these museums and really getting my mind blown, blown for all the things I didn't know. And then the ways I would have taught my history class differently. So how long was it? It was a year, right? It was a year. It was a full year.
0: Uh, so how long? So it was two, a month, two months? in
1: a. That's, that's basically what I, for the most part, that's what I ended up doing. Yeah, two months in Mexico, two months in Guatemala. And I actually stayed pretty stable in places. I spent a month in Mexico City, which is a lot because it's 22 million people there. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to go now. Get out of here. Cause <laughs> I was like, it's a lot, you know a month in Antigua, Guatemala, which I could have actually stayed there forever. How'd you deal um, with the languages? So I do speak Spanish. It's it was rusty. It got less rusty as time on, but four months in, you know, Spanish speaking country and I I could get around. A lot of people do speak English. You know, when I got to Ghana, yeah, most people I mean people a lot of people speak English. Okay. Um in a lot of the different places and especially the places where I was going that were tourist centric, you know, the 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 UNESCO World Heritage Sites. People spoke English there. <laughs> you know, all the folks who were I was doing Airbnb in hostels, right? So those folks, you know, spoke English spoke more than English. They, you know, they speak more languages than we do. Mm-hmm. So and yeah, places in like India where the British had been forever. Yeah, they speak. Yeah
0: languages in india yeah yeah that must have been a great experience
1: it was wonderful it was also alienating it was scary at times no it was terrifying and exciting at the same time yeah.
0: mm-hmm. what was the job that you got
1: it was at skidmore college and it was actually in an american studies department Also i'm not even teaching any of the wonderful things i just learned about I was there for three years. It was not the best working environment. I had to get out. So made my way to Rutgers, which is where I am now in the art history department. And architectural historians, we can do that. I've been in an architecture school, an American studies program, and an art history program. Those are the three different types of programs I've taught in. And you talk about buildings differently in every single one of those disciplines, but we learn to do that because architectural history is, or at least it should be, interdisciplinary. But I, you know, at Rutgers, I'm, yeah, we're in art history, but we're not looking at buildings, pieces of art. That's not, they have a utilitarian function when people actually use them. So, you know, but I don't really talk about art that way, anyways, just as a thing to look at. Yeah. So, that's how I ended up where I am. I I was recruited to, well, I was, I was not recruited. I should say I was encouraged to apply to my position. It was definitely not a backroom thing. I had to, I had to fight for this position, (laughs) (laughs) but I was encouraged to apply. So I'm thankful I'm here. Big state school. These kids are great. I, I, I love them. They're just they're awesome. So I'm, I'm extremely happy where I am. Mm -hmm.
0: How did you end up dealing with Shaw and Dunbar and that whole neighborhood? So
1: I said, my mom was from DC, born and raised. My grandfather, her father was from North Carolina. So you already know that story, you know, came during the great migration, country boy going to the big city got a good government job at the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. And her mom was actually from Maryland. They had been, they had been in Maryland a long time. They were pre-Civil War mm. country Maryland folks. <laughs> country. My grandma be like, we used to catch the squirrels. And so they actually were in PG County back when it was antebellum era. And my grandfather, he actually bought a house like, fully owned it eventually because he lived there forever on 4th Street, right behind Howard in Lee Joy Park. Not the hoity toity, but right there on the edge. <laughs> uh, but it was, it still was, it was right by Kelly Miller. The next block over was Kelly uh-huh. Miller. So that's where my mom grew up. That's where we went when we would visit my grandpa. He lived there until 2003. Four? No, 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 he was there for Five, something like that, okay. From 1960, about 1960 to 2005. so he was there for a long time. Mm-hmm. He knew everybody. He was always on the porch, always talking to people, always had people in the house. And he would tell me these stories about his neighborhood. Now, I was born in 1980, so when I would visit Grandpa, it was 1987, 1992. 19, I was like, uh, what are you talking about, girl? <laughs> she like, this was a, this was an important Black neighborhood. I'm like, mm, you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, so-and-so lived down the street and the Howard Theater did this and the, and the, and the, and the Cooper, I was like, this is the hood, hood, this is the hood. You know, and I, I, I still feel this way. I was, I was always kind of proud of where my mom grew up and where my grandpa lived, but I was also kind of ashamed of it. When people talked about how like, I was in the hood, I'm like, hey, okay, my grandpa lives there. Stop talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But then I was, like, I could not see it. I was, like, whatever you're talking about, I don't know nothing about that. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't see it. Um, you know, it was house beside his, was boarded up, been boarded up, mad roaches in his house. I was, like, I don't know what you're talking about, grandpa. And whenever my friends, I would go to have our homecoming religiously. And (laughs) I would take my friends, I was like, well, if you're coming with me, you have to stop by my grandpa's house. Okay, sure. You know, I was like, don't put your purse on the floor. You don't want to take nothing with you. Yeah, you
0: don't want to invite any friends. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) Right. So my grandpa
1: was like, what is grandpa talking about? Which is how I did my senior essay. You know, this is where it started. 2003 on the neighborhood because I was if my grandpa says that the neighborhood was all this and all that well then what happened and that's what I was investigating I was what happened to Lee Joy Park and I did a comparative analysis between Lee Joy Park and in Georgetown so I walked all around Lee Joy Park and took a picture of all these different houses and then I went to Georgetown I walked around over there and took a picture of a whole bunch of houses and I was like oh, look. They look almost the same. You got those itty bitty row houses in Leesburg Park. You have itty bitty row houses in Georgetown. You got glorious Victorian houses in Leesburg Park. So, what happened? Now, they do have very different histories. Georgetown was around before DC was a city. It was a tobacco port. And the research, undergrad, I found out you know there are these different congressional acts that protected Georgetown as a historic district. The Alley Dwelling Act happened, which kind of got rid of, eradicated a ton of the Black folks living in Georgetown. And then people put racial covenants in and, you know, all this other I was Oh, meanwhile, in Lee Joy Park, where was the city going to put the people who they moved out of? You know, the alleys, they put a whole bunch of public housing here. They put a whole bunch of public housing there. Granted, there were alleys in, in and around Lee Joy Park, too. And this is actually part of my book. It's, but it was just all this federal legislation. Things didn't just happen just because they were very concerted efforts to create black enclaves and restricted black spaces, which just can't contain them. If we can't eradicate the black population of DC entirely, then at least let's just give them less choice of where to go. So, overcrowded housing, everything was a decision made with specific intent. And so, that's kind of what I was looking at. And I was oh, so that's what happened. It was my grandfather's stories, because I was what you're telling me and what I am seeing do not match up at all. And it doesn't make any sense. It just, nothing made sense to me. And then the research just revealed all this federal legislation, lobbying by different real estate, white real estate interests, the district committee in the Senate, all the virulent racists who were there from the South who were trying to make DC a white city. It just, so all of that stuff. So that's where it came from. I created my grandfather and his storytelling. Hmm. From an architectural standpoint, the buildings are the same. So what's different? You can find buildings that match, it's not the buildings, (laughs) what happened.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to talk about churches Uh as a form of development. What's that guy's name?
1: Walter Foster.
0: Yeah. How did that come about? I found out that Northwest One was a whole bunch of churches that got together and became developers. And I know now people are talking about it. It's a new thing, but it's not a new thing at all. Mm -hmm. Can you shed light on Fon Choi?
1: Yeah, so he is a fascinating figure. And I will say this happened in D.C. It also happened in, in Harlem. Abyssinian Church in Harlem bought up real estate and created housing for its constituents. They did this because... They didn't want to lose the folks who were going to the church. That's, that's part of the problem. You can't lose all your constituents. And they understood what federal legislation was doing to neighborhoods. If you kick out the people, the churches are sure to follow. The schools are sure to follow. Who's going to go to the church? Who's going to go to the school, right? Mm-hmm. So they're shuttering, They're literally shuttering institutions as they displace people and the research that i've done i saw as early as the 1920s people in black neighborhoods testifying before congress saying don't put roads through our homes we've been here around fort reno fort stanton we've been here don't do this to us and they did it anyways obviously you know what happens in the 40s and 50s large-scale urban renewal and the whole time, Black folks are saying, don't do this to us. I mean, there's that's one of the good things about doing research on D.C. is that there's the congressional record, and it's there. And I'm like, oh, no, we, we've been protesting. By the time the 60s come along, you know, we had the March on Washington in 63. And Walter Fontroy was one of the D.C. coordinators for SNCC the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It was a civil rights activist group. And it was actually one of the more, even though they say Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they were one of the more radical groups, very active in the South. And, you know, this is when Martin Luther King was, the well, i coming. And Fontory was one of the many people who helped coordinate the March on Washington. He was in charge of the D.C. branch. So he, you know, need people to go here, need to go do this, need to do that, need to get this permit, need to do that, whatever, whatever. He was a local man for that. He found out about some more legislation that was getting passed by Lyndon B. Johnson called the Model Cities Program. And the Model Cities, a part of it said specifically that the government needed to work with community groups. And so he was, okay, who are the community groups in my neighborhood? And what are our major concerns? Housing and public schools. So he got together people from any number of different organizations, the Black civic associations, the different churches in the neighborhood, because they wanted to make sure that the people who live there would continue to live there when this model city's urban renewal planning came to be. And they wanted to make sure that they were the ones determining what was going to happen or how the program should pan out. So yeah, he created a coalition of organizations and the Model Inner City Community Corporation, now I'm forgetting what MICO stands for, I should know, was an umbrella organization and he was the head of it and the thing that he had trouble with was convincing his constituents and the people in the neighborhood that urban renewal was going to work for them which makes sense because for the past 40 years they're no this is not going to work for us but he was pressing Congress to make Shaw, what he called the Shaw Urban Renewal Area, one of those demonstration projects. All the while he was also trying to convince the people of Shaw <laughs> that this was a good idea. And one of the best things I found, and a couple of people have mentioned this in, in other you know, book chapters and articles, is that Fontroy had star power. He was the the he was the reverend at the New Bethel Baptist Church, so I should mention that too. But he had star power because he helped organize the March on Washington. So who was he going to bring in on his behalf to convince the people of Shaw that Erper renewal was good for them? His good friend Martin Luther King Jr., which he did. He brought in Dr. King to speak to a crowd of three thousand people. In Shaw, they did this parade around Shaw that started at Dunbar, went around the neighborhood, ended up at Cardoza, where King was, y'all need to prepare to participate in urban renewal. Now, he has shifted his, I guess his goals or his visions for civil rights, because at that time, 1967, this is when, so Model Cities was passed in 66, and Fauntory invited King over to Shaw in 67, any number of different civil rights legislation measures have been passed. So King kind of felt like the things that he was supposed to do in the South, he had done them. So where's the next big battle? Housing in the North. He went to Chicago and tried to talk about housing up there. And I'm talking, oh, it was neo-Nazis and KKK, they stoned him, right? King in Chicago. The the white folks were trying to beat him down. Mm. Yeah, he was. Whoa, I thought I knew because he did, they didn't want black folks in their neighborhoods. I am like, you can't come up here talk about housing. What are you talking about? No, you know. And King, I thought I knew racism in the South, but it's a whole other creature in the North. So what Fontory was trying to do in Shaw was perfectly aligned with what King was trying to do with housing in the North, because that's where all the black folks, you know, great migration. Mm-hmm terrible housing in chicago terrible housing in new york terrible housing in in the bay mm-hmm. right so he's he all right so this is the second leg of this this civil rights thing but you know i guess the irony is that it literally was less than a year after king gave his speech at cardoza that he was assassinated in memphis it wasn't even a full year Mm. And then, you know, you know what happened. Mm -hmm. That whole neighborhood was up in flames. And Fontory didn't really have too much, you know, he didn't really have a hard time convincing anybody of anything at that point. Right, okay, now we need to rebuild. You know, before it was, let's see what we can do. Now as well, this is what we have to do. Yeah. And so he worked with Michael to make those coalitions between different churches creating housing in the area to press upon the city that black architects need to be involved in the rebuilding. So a lot of the folks up at Howard who were teaching at the Howard School of Architecture were involved. Students at the Howard School of Architecture were involved. They were working, like this was a studio project for them. What's your vision for Shaw? Because Fontroy, demanded that this was for the people, by the people, uh, with the people. He demanded that Black architects, Black contractors, Black builders, all everything. And that, that's what that's what happened. And D.C. was the place to do it because, yeah, there was Howard, right? So, and that architecture program had been there since 1910 or 1911. And it was professional and accredited by the 1950s they had the intellectual capital to do exactly what needed to be done in the neighborhood at that particular time. Mm
0: -hmm. I almost felt that it was a renaissance during that period. What I remember
1: Mm
0: -hmm. going down, I think that's first street. So if you go down that street more, you have Simpson Quarter. So Simpson Quarter, that street where you had Walker Jones Elementary, Terrell Junior High, Mm. um, there's a little triangular grass field. Mm -hmm. um, And then if you keep on up, you hit Dunbar. So Mm -hmm. it's that whole line there is from elementary, junior high, high school. I remember growing up along next to, between Terrell Junior High and Walker Jones Elementary, there was this clinic.
1: Mm.
0: And across the street from that clinic, was, again, Simpson Quarter. Simpson Quarter had this little outdoor, it's an amphitheater almost, and in Mm -hmm. the middle, it had a fountain. And Mm -hmm. I remember one year that fountain was on, and I was like, oh my God, let's get playing fountain. Mm -hmm. And then after that, fountain was off. And there was a grocery store there. It was a really well-planned community. And then Mm -hmm. crack happened. Mm -hmm. And Simpson Quarter was a co-op, Mm-hmm. and you expect people to n- learn how to manage property and manage money so mm-hmm. that was not no one taught them how to do it you kind of mm-hmm. here's Robert rules of law figure mm-hmm. it out <laughs> so it was uh, this whole bunch of stuff so mm-hmm. i forgot my point i had a point to that um, renaissance you
1: said carefully planned No, oh,
0: yeah it was all carefully planned and i'm sure you've come across similar public housing that was well thought of what i'm describing as far as crack happened
1: mm-hmm.
0: you think that that happened in most of the areas and yeah yeah
1: i mean <laughs> definitely happened in leedroy park yeah it did. I will say, I haven't quite, I'm not at this part of the book yet. I haven't quite figured out what my conclusion is. <laughs> uh, you know, and.
0: In I'm terms trying, of like the, like, in terms of what happened in that neighborhood, what made it change?
1: So not just what it, what made it change, but what, stop the action part of it was the money ran out for the architects um the administration the administration changed Nixon wasn't cool with giving all these black folks in the the inner city all this money and I used quote air quotes for inner city right so then the the commissions for design ran out not everything that people planned happened and I think about The Black architects who were involved in creating all this housing, the stuff that you see, I can't even think of the name right now. So down 7th Street, along the convention center, there's a whole bunch of planned urban development and some of the other stuff that's now been demolished and converted. Black architects were in charge of that too. Their first major commissions were school buildings, Dunbar and Shaw. Major, major, major. And then the housing. And I heard you say something about my complicit as an architect. And I'm not calling these folks complicit because I respect them greatly, but they also went mainstream to a certain extent. So the Black architects in D.C. who were doing all this great community building, I mean, some of them went on to do more educational institutions, UDC and stuff at, the Fort Lincoln Town Center, and things of that nature. But also, they started getting non-government commissions and not, you know, non-not-for-profit commissions. So I guess I should just say commercial (laughs) commissions. And, you know, and some of them got absorbed into other firms or they reached a point, and Melvin Mitchell talks about this. So I think the kind of radical design tradition went mainstream. And then, yeah, a lot of the exact things that you're talking about, yeah, the crack happened. Yeah, you know, so it's it's a number of different things that are going on in the city. And the people just, and I will, I another intriguing figure is Marion Barry. And, say what you want about the man but the more that I learned about him the absolute more that I respect him just understanding he also came from the south was also involved with Nick
0: you know started priding so he was a physicist like he
1: he was so oh my gosh he started a PhD like he was yeah he's a little bit of a genius okay yeah Mm -hmm. yes and you know, when he became mayor, he tried his damnedest to attract business and for better or for worse, right, to the city. Metro Tech, if you ever want to look into something crazy, look into Metro Tech, because that was this major development uh, plan that he had. The convention center, the old convention center, he was really trying to bring some life into the city. I'll say Anthony Williams did that to the gazillion, gazillion, gazillion extreme that, that made the whole flipping switcheroo. But Barry tried to tried to get the Black folks, the Black architects, the commissions and tried to build the city and try to do for the city. But yeah, so if we're going along that line, yeah, then crack happens. And it happened to him too. <laughs> it <laughs> happened to
0: everybody. Uh, I done my high school internship at devereaux Pernell. Ooh. And when Paul Devereaux passed away, they had his eulogy at, which is now is an Apple store, but mm. it used to uh-huh. be, <laughs> right across from the convention center. So they had it there. When I went there, Maryn Barry came and mm-hmm. he spoke. And I, at that moment, I was like, this is why he's mere for life. He... <laughs> Everybody was I mean standing ovation off the top, but even for him to even go and that i I wished I recorded it back then, mm. even though I didn't have any type of recording device, but it was it was a phenomenal speech. I would have voted for him again. It was so good. You're not the only one that has mentioned how. Barry, you know, how influential he was for black architects. And how mm-hmm. he continued on that that tradition of of giving them work or having it so that if any new projects happen, you have to hire a black architect yeah. or, mm-hmm. you know, black somebody. Yeah. And and now it's what the hell happened? What did Anthony Williams do besides giving us baseball? At <laughs> an a, a excellent deal to the owner.
1: So, when I look at the new Dunbar, and I said my research started in Lee Joy Park because my grandpa was a storyteller. That man could talk, and I got some of his gift of gab for, for, for better or for worse. The Dunbar piece came in when I was at GW and I was taking this seminar on DC, and they were, like, oh, you have to research a DC thing. I'm, like, well, I'm going, you know, and I was like, oh as many times as I had went to my grandpa's house and for a long time, that was the only place I even knew how to get to in DC. I had never been to Dunbar. My aunt, my mom's older sister had gone to Dunbar. I so said, my mom went to Wilson. So I drive over to Dunbar in 2006 and I was like, I must not have the right address. <laughs> Cause this is, this is <laughs> I was like, this ain't it, <laughs> you know? I did not, I was completely shocked. Again, the more research I did, I understand what the architects were trying to do. And there were, they were black architects. It was Brian and Brian, you know, Howard faculty who had designed the building. Now, when the book comes out, you'll find out all about it. But they were the lead. They It was their commission. There was nobody else on it but them, period. And when that Dunbar, the 1977 Dunbar was constructed, it was the most expensive school in the DC metropolitan area, not just DC, but that includes the Maryland and Virginia suburbs. That school cost I can't even remember, maybe it was 26, no, 13, I don't know, some number of millions of dollars. And it was the most expensive school built in the whole metropolitan area, that crazy-looking building—that you know what I'm talking about—the Zumbar that was just redesigned in 2013 was a collabo, right? It's 904 now. I'm, I'm gonna blame it on the time.
0: It's um, I know who the architects were. It was Moody, yes, and Perkins. Thanks. I don't know Eastman or Will. I can't remember.
1: Yeah, yes because but then i think then perkins and will swallow up no that's not right no, no, no. isn't moody Nolan part of perkins will now
0: no perkins. no they're not
1: okay 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 i'll tell you it was perkins now i just googled it. perkins eastman and yeah, moody uh, nolan yeah right, there you eastman. go okay yeah there was a time 70s 80s right up until the 90s where black architect your firms were enough it was enough for them to be the lead on the commission and somehow maybe it's because of the growth factor of the firm maybe the firms didn't grow large enough I don't know uh to handle such commissions to the point where they have to partner but I don't I don't know that, that I'm fully convinced about that so like I told you that's the conclusion that I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's interesting how that happens. I, I also feel some kind of way about it. Yeah. At this point, we see Black firms partnering up with White firms to get major commissions. And I guess the question is, why? Maybe it is an a, a issue of capacity. I don't know. Tokenization of Black architecture firms is real. And <laughs> Black architects. So... It would not surprise me, Fibble or otherwise.
0: So I often thought about what you did with Berry Farms is oh. making Tallahouse historic property or oh. how, however that term is. I found out that a female architect designed it, and I figured, oh, oh hey, since you can get Southwest, oh. parts of Southwest, designated as why can't this public housing designate as that it, it went through some major renovations so it wouldn't be
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know but I want to hear your journey into getting that done it, it was a lingering thought in my mind when I heard mm-hmm. what you did
1: well I'll say I played a very small it was a critical part but it was a small role the folks who really led up that fight were the Berry Farm Tenants and Allies Association. Oh, okay. They've been fighting that fight. Detrice Belt and Paulette Matthews, they have been fighting, and they're Berry Farm's residents. They have been fighting that fight for a long time, years and years and years, to keep their homes. It was For them, it was a fight about housing, again, and the ability to keep your home because you don't know where you're going to end up once they literally take your home from you. And, you know, they tried a number of different ways to get the city to listen to them and their concerns about displacement and about gentrification. The the zoning was crazy dense zoning. They complained about that. The zoning board actually had to go back against the developers' wishes for the super high-density zoning I know that Sarah had mentioned last week about the, the unit issue. You know, we're going to replace one per one, one-to-one units. Yeah, you might save 300 and then put 1100 market rate. But that completely changes the character of the neighborhood. So they were trying really hard to manage zoning issues and just make sure that they remain as a community. I don't remember exactly how the origin of the local historic landmark nomination came about, but they did um, have Sarah through Prologue DC working on that, and she did the nomination. Empower DC is another nonprofit that came in and partnered with them as well. So you literally have Berry Farm Tenants and Allies Association Empower DC which is an advocacy organization for moderate and low-income D.C. residents, and Prologue D.C., which is a historian, and Parisa Narusi. I, you know, I to give people credit when credit is due. So Parisa uh, was working with Empower D.C. And actually, the Historic Preservation Office, the state, air quotes, Historic Preservation Office in D.C., which is located within the dc office of planning did not support the nomination for historic landmark designation for berry farm they said that it lacked integrity and so the state historic preservation office basically wanted nothing to do with berry farm with the nomination but they were a separate entity from the people who would actually decide whether or not it would become a historic landmark, and that's the Historic Preservation Review Board. Completely different entity. Okay, lots. It's messy, and that was what is going on. So, you know, this scrappy group of people. This is going to be a national, uh, a local historic na- landmark, whether or not the Historic Preservation Office agrees with us, and. I don't even remember how Sarah got in touch with me, but someone was you should call Amber. (laughs) Because she can talk about the nitty gritty integrity point. If you want to come off and talk about historic criterion and the different levels of integrity, she can do that. Now, it's true, actually, for better or for worse, I'm well-versed in this policy. And so I read the HPO statement, the Historic Preservation Office statement about the lack of integrity in the womp womp, and I countered it with the Secretary of the Interior's Standards for Rehabilitation, which is a book that I had to learn at UVA, and discussed the different criteria of integrity and what that meant, showed a couple case studies where public housing had been preserved and just kind of finesse this argument that basically said, don't listen to the HPO, they just don't want to deal with this. The buildings having integrity. That was my job. That was all I did. Yeah, it took time and a little bit of research, but it was just the the argument that the Historic Preservation Office put forward was just really, it was really weak. It sounded strong because they knew the language to make it sound strong, but I was like, eh, no. So that was my job. And, you know, the real heavy lifting was done by the folks that I had named. And I was just the preservation person to come in and be, let me speak some preservation talk to y'all right quick and translate this. And then, you know, I went to Berry Farm. I walked around in DC heat. This con- this d- demolition site, it it, just, it was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, because y'all is demolishing the houses It has no integrity. It's a construction site. What are you t- what are you talking about? Um, yeah, it was it was it was ridiculous. But it's a bittersweet. It's a bittersweet victory. It really is, because the folks who live there still aren't there. Mm-hmm. It's gonna take longer to. Come up with a plan. Now the DCHA and whoever the new communities initiatives should have thought of this ahead of time. They should have been more considerate. So yeah, it's taking longer to come up with a plan that respects the history of Berry Farm and includes these new units, you know, and they complained and complained, oh, now we have to have less units, less market rates. you you know so yeah it's tough it's it's it definitely wasn't i mean i'm on the outside so i you know i say it's bittersweet and you know i don't know if the trees and paulette feel the same way maybe they feel this was a full victory but if you really had to force their hand Hmm. and there are plenty of people who gave testimony before the Historic Preservation Review Board, who was going to determine whether or not it would be a local landmark, really, yeah, you can talk about the derelict condition of the buildings, but that's because DCHA let that happen. That's not the fault of the people themselves. And yeah, you can fix these buildings, you know. So it just was, it's complicated. There's still going to be, it's not going to be as high density as it was, but there's, you know, there's going to be change in that neighborhood. And that's just something, you know, change is inevitable, but DC residents and current residents, their rights were infringed upon as they usually are. And people just didn't, they didn't want to see the humanity in other people. Right. So the preservation argument was absolutely valid. It was real. You know, the history of Berry Farm public housing is one thing. The history of Berry Farm before that even is a whole nother thing. That's a whole nother indignity. But that, I will say that was one of the most, (laughs) like, that was one of the most meaningful things I've ever done (laughs) in life.
0: Before I let you go, I have two more little things, two little tiny little things. One is, what do you think of architects? What's your opinion on them? Hmm. Mm.
1: Well, I know you have, you're conflicted. Oh. I wanted to be an architect. You might be asking the wrong person. I still think architecture is an, an amazing field. Oh my gosh. My family thinks I can design stuff. I'm, I'm actually not. <laughs> <laughs> when well, you go and build my dream house, I'm have to write your dream book? <laughs> um I think architects have a place in this fight, okay? So we need y'all. I did tell my students when I was teaching in architecture school that not nah, all of y'all have to be architects. Don't tell no one I said that. But we need people who have knowledge of the built environment to sit on. City Council, and to be in these other arenas and to influence the policy that impacts the the built environment, because I will say quite frankly, y'all come in at the at the end of the decision making process. Folks think they're building something from the ground up as, oh, this is beautiful. No, all these other people already made decisions before y'all even got to the table. So some of y'all need to be over there where the decision making happens and some of y'all need to be over here doing the design to make sure that it's equitable and accessible and responds to people's actual needs okay and y'all need to be everywhere basically so yeah i (laughs) some people hate me for this not everyone needs to be a registered architect yeah, we could we could definitely get our numbers up. We could definitely get our numbers up in that arena. But some of the some of these folks need to be doing what they can do in other places to help the process along. And that's I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm a teacher, right? A professor, not an architect, that and the fact that I did hate studio. Because at least then I get to say these things to my students. I don't know what they told you over there. <laughs> but right so yeah architecture almost every other facet of our life for better for worse is part of the capitalist system so yes you're participating in the system but i think the projects that people take on make a difference sometimes folks don't have much of a choice in that but there are a number of people who've made a way to try to seek out specific commissions right and specific types of work and that's important so i don't hate architects i wanted to be y'all and i was like i don't And what happened to
0: my grandpa's neighborhood? What's that about? We went all over it. So my last one is, is I want to get your thoughts on this. Just the way government is treating public housing Mm -hmm. and the way that it actually is, Mm -hmm. I feel that government believes that public housing is temporary that it was meant for you to be there for maybe two or three years just to help you get off your feet and then you go. And Mm -hmm. instead, it becomes a generational thing almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think it should be temporary? Or should it be someone should be able to live in families and families? It should be that way. I mean, was the original intent temporary also? It was. It was different intents
1: in different cities and states but generally the the notion was that public housing would be temporary to do exactly what you said for folks to quote unquote get on their feet and and find their own homes or whatever but as we know the housing market black folks were locked out of the housing market for a long time so that wasn't going to work for them we also know that there is a issue of who gets to qualify who doesn't qualify i have friends who can speak on this way more eloquently than i can but you know you can only make a certain amount of money to qualify if you make a little bit more than this level you don't qualify but in this gap between not qualifying in qualifying, there's this, there's this gap where people can't actually afford market rate. There's a whole segment of people who can't afford. So what does that mean? It's, it's much bigger than who can afford housing. It's about what people are getting paid and a living wage. I always go back to the living wage. If people made a living wage, then you wouldn't have to worry about the folks who fall between the gaps right? You can't, and this is, you can't incentivize someone to make more money and not qualify for public housing, but then have no housing, which they can afford. That doesn't make any sense. So there's, there's a huge gap between quote unquote market rate and low income housing. And that needs to be satisfied, but none of these developers want to do that. (laughs) So one of the things that my research has shown the Black folks have been known this. You can't depend on the private sector to provide affordable housing. Because they won't. Because they're like, can I make a profit? No, I'm not doing that. So then who's going to do it? If you can't, in a free society, force the private sector to do that, then who's going to do that? Someone needs to do that. So yeah, I do follow along the lines. All right, if that's not the... Pr- private sector's uh, concern, then there's got to be the public sector's concern. So yeah, I do feel the government needs to supply good public housing for citizens, residents, or make sure that folks get paid a living wage so that they can actually afford, it's going to have to be one or the other, maybe even both.
0: Crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know, that's Crazy. A lot. <laughs> I,
1: know Crazy. I know, I know, it's asking too much. Ask me too
0: much. Emperor, I can talk to you for hours, but <laughs> we both know we can't. <laughs> <laughs> for the audience, we were supposed to do this four months ago, but then the pandemic happened and you were really we yeah. can't talk now.
1: <laughs> that was it was horrible. It was it was a horrible time. I'll just say that. I can't say that we're in the clear right now. It is what it is how's um how's jersey been despite and in spite of all that has happened specifically in new jersey with covid i'm still glad i'm here that's the crazy we we were hit so hard you know so many people i know lost loved ones i mean so many people moms dads sisters cousins it was it was not good here but i i I actually really enjoy living in New Jersey more than I thought I would. It is not the armpit of America, despite what people say. I'm in Central Jersey, which is basically halfway between New York and Philly. A little bit closer to New York, but basically an hour either way. So before all this happened, I enjoyed taking trips to New York and to Philly. I I do have family in Philly. That, that DC Philly North Carolina that whole line got the east
0: saying. coast covered yes
1: <laughs> yes so
0: um and then you can even go up a little bit to Connecticut cuz I'm pretty sure you know people up there too right mm-hmm. yeah yep so yeah you know
1: it's it's been great i actually really said i really enjoy being at Rutgers my students are awesome
0: okay go to bed you got stuff to do you got booked the right <laughs> You need <laughs> to stop talking to people.
1: Uh, it's funny because I was telling someone today. I said, "Yeah, I got to do the podcast," but I agreed to this back before all this stuff happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm gonna do it.
0: <laughs> I am grateful to have you on here. I was I'm super. I was super excited. Then I'm super excited now. I'll be super excited when I go and edit this. Thank you so much, Doctor. Why did you the Doctor? Dr. Amber Wiley. You know, honestly,
1: I can do Amber Wiley PhD, but I actually prefer Professor Wiley. Oh, okay. Because uh, I feel that's what I'm really here to do is to teach. That was my real purpose in getting a PhD. So, I
0: Prof. Wiley, yeah. Prof. Wiley. <laughs> Professor Wiley, I'll do that. Yeah. Okay. Hi, right, Professor Wiley. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Wonderful talking to you. Same. Finish that book and get some rest and eat well and stay safe. I'm trying all the things. All the same. (laughs)
1: All
0: right, girl. Take care. Bye. 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 Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show, and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week, but it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going, and I want to invest in its growth, and I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y. Or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds. And just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins. And you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week, and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm/slash. Arches Polly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.